In episode 20 of the Well-Led Schools podcast, I am joined by educator and teacher wellbeing coach, Ellen Ronalds-Keen, where we exchange ideas about resilience, teacher wellbeing, and the importance of putting yourself first. Stay tuned. Welcome to Well-Led Schools with Adrienne Hornby. On this podcast, we talk about all things staff wellbeing, school culture and leadership. Join me for incredible and rich conversations with a range of experts who will give you tips, tricks and inspiration to best support the well-being of the staff in your school and yourself. I'm your host, Adrienne Hornby, a health and well-being consultant and former school leader. I partner with schools across Australia to tailor and embed staff wellbeing action plans aimed at addressing staff burnout and building positive working environments. Welcome back to another episode of the Well-Led Schools podcast. In this episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with educator, teacher wellbeing coach and podcast producer, Ellen Ronalds-Keen. Ellen's approach to coaching clients is to help them separate their professional identity from their personal one, while still supporting them to cultivate a deep sense of self-awareness and self-love in order to help them build the resilience they inevitably need to maintain their cool, even under chaotic circumstances. As you'll learn in the episode, resilience is so much more than being able to quickly bounce back from stressful situations. It's also about investing time in yourself, building habits, and creating a support system that you can fall back on when times are tough, but that also keep you going well when the going is good. One topic you'll hear us talk about a lot throughout the episode is how important it is to know and advocate for yourself. After all, you are the one who knows yourself best. And if it feels like something's off, it's because it probably is. Developing our ability to be vulnerable and communicate our needs to others is one of the most significant steps that we can take to receive the outside support we need to feel well again. So without further ado, let's dive in. Thank you so much for tuning in today. My team has put together the show notes, which can be found wherever you're listening to this podcast with easy access links for connecting with Ellen. If you're keen to get on top of your overall well-being, I recently launched a self-paced online course called A Roadmap to Better Wellbeing, which takes participants on a journey of understanding stress from a multidimensional perspective and will guide them through creating their very own personalized well-being action plan. Throughout the modules, you'll find videos, short activities and resources with simple, easy to implement strategies that you can incorporate into your personal and your professional life, as well as ideas to share and practice with your students. Learn more and register at adriannehornby.com.au forward slash wellbeing hyphen course, or you can check out the show notes for quick access today.
All right. Thank you so much, Ellen, for joining me. I'm so excited to talk to you about all things teacher resilience and teacher wellbeing or educators, I should say. We always leave our, our educators out of the mix when we're talking about this, but it's so important for us to acknowledge that it's all staff in our school who, who need support, in- inclusive of the leaders. Gosh, how did I forget my own? <laughs> so welcome. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. We got here. We were we laughing got here in the end. <laughs> before we got on. Two mothers um, trying running businesses with trying kids to catch in daycare. Up with each other. <laughs> oh god, the daycare talk. So that is an impact on our well-being. Yes, uh, There's something we'd like to flag is children being sick all the time. Yep. <laughs> Sharing their germs with everyone in the house. <laughs> oh gosh. Yep. Yep. And probably have to be mindful, um, those leaders who are listening, that those staff who do have to constantly tend to their mm. their children are uh, you know oftentimes the one who feel like they're always lagging behind and like mm. they can't catch up and they feel like they're letting everybody down and we really need to support them mm. and just a word of reassurance i think even just that like i get that you're it's kind of out of your hands <laughs> that's right and you're doing the best that you can with what you've got the yep. thing i my i constantly parrot in school <laughs> Right. So my first question for you, Ellen, is what is one thing that you like to do to look after and support your health and or well-being? I mean, I do lots of things, but I was thinking about this question this morning and um, I think the thing that has made the biggest difference to my health and well-being, um, and and I have a chronic illness background, so I have a, a number of conditions, um, and it took me a long time to learn this, which is to advocate for myself uh, and to that I'm doing a health team, um, you know, medical, but also other sort of allied health people that treat me like a partner in my well-being and not like a, you know, just like a number. Um, so to really include me, um, but also to listen to me. And um, I really advocate for myself when I feel like that's not happening and that can be really hard to do. And um, it's, but it's made a huge difference to my well-being, you know, over the years. Yeah, and I like that whole idea of advocating for yourself. And in many times it's also setting boundaries that sometimes people might not understand because they're mm. not experiencing the impacts that your, as you were saying, your chronic illness is putting on you. And for some mm. people it's our mental health too. So when That's people right. are setting those boundaries um, and advocating for themselves, it's not something we need to shy away from or be afraid of. They know themselves best and and we need to be open and really curious to how we can support somebody with something that might be way out of our perspective. Mm, exactly. And you, like the fact that you just said they know themselves best, that's a huge thing that I see over and over with, with my clients, but it's also something I've experienced myself is being treated like an unreliable narrator on your own experience. Mm. Um, and so just sort of being able to recognize that and and often it is that you know people are not mind readers they don't always know um and if you don't communicate what's happening for you um but also just to to be able to push back a little bit sometimes if 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 you feel like people are not taking you seriously or not listening to you not um not hearing you when you're asking for specific you know supports or whatever and just to advocate for yourself which is you know it, it's important but it's not always easy Yeah, that's right. And this is probably going to lead beautifully into my introductory question to you is I would love for you to tell the audience a bit about who you are, what you do and your journey to where you are today. Thank you. Yeah. So I am Ellen Ronalds-Keen. I am the founder of Self-Care for Teachers. 
and the Heart of the Teacher Wellbeing podcast, which is in its sixth year now, although I've been Amazing. mostly off on maternity leave for the last <laughs> year or so. Um, <laughs> so there hasn't been many episodes recently. Uh, but it is, uh, yeah, that that I wear a few hats in my life. So I, I also have a, um, a podcast production business, but that's a, a side thing for this conversation i um i work with teachers and i and i have been creating resources over the years to work with teachers and school staff to uh support their well-being and their career um choices and really with a focus on them as people first and teachers second and i know we're going to unpack that a little bit more but i'm very um passionate about holistic differentiated self-care as a really key part of well-being obviously it's more complicated than that and when I talk about self-care I'm not talking about so much like putting on a you know a face mask um, before bed or like a manicure or that kind of thing I'm really talking about that much more deeper um, transformational self-care being of caring for yourself which is something that a lot of teachers actually struggle with because it means we have to prioritize ourselves and that's hard. Mm, we're used to supporting others so often and that's what it, it's drilled into us to do. But yeah, you're exactly. so right. We can't give to others until we have given to ourselves. And I like that whole idea of that really holistic and differentiated approach. And I like to say it's an integrated approach. And mm. I remember, you know, I've been following you for a while and jumped on a few of your trainings, which which are great and amazing. And you talk a lot about those different aspects of your well-being and, and tending to those um, and looking after yourself beyond, yes, just the bubble bath um, or sitting yeah. in front of the TV. It's actually, you know, putting in place those interventions that are that are really supportive. Mm. And I and I remember too, it's coming back to me now. You know, I have a really big positive uh, psychology focus, mm. and I remember what you saying. You know, that's but one as- aspect of it, and I couldn't agree more wholly because, mm. you know, if we focus sometimes too much on only the positive, then we don't address those areas of need and tending mm. to those, and that also comes back to that strong advocacy for ourselves, recognizing uh, where we need that support, and then therefore advocating for ourselves <laughs> and how we can get that, and helping mm. others to see that too. Yeah, and I, I mean, I love positive psychology and you know the perma model that has on the end which is talking about you know more Mm. um more non-psychological aspects of health i suppose um but certainly just you know very much my lived experience i'm also married to an allied health professional so um very much more on that physiology side of things as well has been um really important for me to to recognize that i'm a body and a brain (laughs) and and so is everybody else (laughs) yeah yeah and i think i'm so drawn to the way that you approach that too because it's around developing those skills and strategies that we need to be able to to feel our best and and ultimately having those skills and capabilities is is an element of being resilient and Mm. you know your tagline is building resilient teachers. And Mm. I'm really keen to hear about what resilience means to you and what you think a resilient teacher or educator looks like. Yeah. Um, So that, that idea of the resilient teacher came to me as I was exploring, you know, concepts of resilience. And, you know, I think so many of us in education are reasonably familiar with the um, more common kind of psychological 
idea of like bouncing back um, mm. and, you know, things like grit um, and, and those kind of concepts. But what really struck me was when I learned that actually in other industries, they talk about resilience a little bit differently. Um, so in the engineering sort of infrastructure, environmental sustainability world, they often talk about resilience as being not just something that happens after the fact. It's actually a really intentional uh, process of design. So um, for for a more specific example, like in engineering, if they are um, designing a bridge, they want that bridge to be resilient to floods and, mm-hmm. and maybe not every flood. I mean, obviously in Australia we've seen some catastrophic flooding, but to you kind of more... Um, not the one in a hundred year flood, but maybe the, the, you know, the one in every couple of years when we get a fair bit of rain and the the river rises or the creek rises, we don't want that bridge to wash away every time there's a bit of rain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that doesn't happen by waiting for the flood before we start thinking about how we make that bridge resilient. It actually starts at the design process of, of understanding the environment and what the likely stressors are going to be on that bridge. Um, and again, may not be able to design a bridge that can withstand every single level of flood. Um, But then when we're designing and creating that bridge, looking at, okay, not just the creation of it, but then maintaining the bridge as well to make sure that it's strong so that when that event happens, I mean, this this applies to buildings and, you know, um, other types of infrastructure like um, sewage plants and water treatment plants and all these kinds of things. The, the, the focus is that we want them to be resilient so that in the time of crisis, these structures uh, don't go offline because we need them. And again, there may be a really adverse event where it totally goes offline, but most of the time um, we can keep these structures or these systems operating um, to support the, you know, to continue serving the the need that they they do. And so it really got me thinking about the way um, many of the people that I'd worked with on their health and wellbeing and resilience ha- and even how I'd been thinking about resilience before as just really this afterwards thing, like, oh, I'm, I'm having a, a tough time or there's some kind of event or, or, or something happening and I need to bounce back. But actually thinking about it really proactively and almost planning for the tough times because we can't always predict when that will happen, but most of the time we can predict that hard stuff's going to happen. We're not necessarily anticipating a global pandemic level um, <laughs> challenge, but, you know, as teachers in, in, in classrooms, we can, we can probably anticipate that at some point in the week we are going to have some or all of our lunch break taken up by work type stuff. Um, we might anticipate that we're going to have some challenging conversations with other staff or with the parents of some of our students, like there's going to be these just kind of general ups and downs, um, challenging moments. And we obviously want to make sure that we are building ourselves up, resourcing ourselves, fueling ourselves to deal with those. And then we also can anticipate at some point um, there may be other, you know, there might be an accident while we're out on playground duty where we have to respond. And that's, you know, obviously uh, a, a more serious uh, kind of event um, and we might have like a really horrible interaction with the parent that's not our normal day-to-day but it might be even more more um, taxing on us or, or really draining for us and then of course we know that there are these ups and downs in the school like report card week and parent-teacher interview week and last you know two weeks of the school year when all everything has to be done because we've got this hard deadline and, and I, what i was noticing is that a lot of teachers and I, and i certainly was this way myself 
at times we know those things are coming, but we're so in the weeds of today that we can't even think about preparing for week eight, week nine, report cards, et cetera. And so when we get there, we're actually already really depleted, even mm. though it was a completely predictable uh, you know, time of the term that was going to require a bit more from us. And yet we have arrived at that very predictable, challenging time of the term, completely depleted because we weren't planning for it. We weren't being really proactive about it. So my approach to resilience and what I teach people and and work with teachers on is those proactive strategies. And it very much centers around this idea of um, designing your life um, and being very uh, intentional, not letting life happen to us. Um, Because again, we can get really swept up in just the treadmill and the rat, rat race of, of, all the demands on us and not necessarily be taking that time out to pause and reflect and think about what our needs are and anticipate what our needs might be in more challenging times and to think about how we can, you know, top ourselves up intentionally. Yeah, I like that whole idea of that preparation and that recognition of key and repeated stresses. Mm. And, you know, it's that whole, it's really about having self-awareness too. Mm. And as you were talking, I'm like, yes, there's there's definitely plans that we need to have in place. But it's also if, as you said, we don't get around to planning that or really mm. anticipating that that's coming, it's go- recognising, oh, I'm in the middle of that really stressful time now. I didn't anticipate it. I haven't followed through with my plan. But what are those strategies that have worked for me in the past that I can deploy and initiate right now Mm. in order to be able to bring myself back up to, you know, not feeling sort of below baseline and particularly stressed or burnt out or, or whatever it might be. And it has me thinking too a lot about, you know, that's really important. And we were talking about this before we jumped on. This is really important for us as individuals to know this, but at a school level to have those conversations as teams, as leaders, and as a whole staff about what we know is coming up, getting into a habit of doing that and thinking, well, how can we best prepare and plan for those key times? What are the supports that we can put in place for our people? And, you know, as you were talking about report writing week, I'm thinking critical incidents with children, um, really complex behaviours, we don't just have to accept those as part of the job because what makes our staff feel safe psychologically and physically coming back into workplace is the support that we that we have on offer after that and you know this is you know obviously that really important uh fluidity that we need to have behind resilience for ourselves individually and then how we can build that collective resilience as a staff. Mm. Um, and, you know, we were talking about how they aren't mutually exclusive. Like that we, all. They're so intertwined. Yeah. And if we want our staff to be more resilient with plans and skills and strategies for how to look after themselves, what are our plans, skills and strategies to look after our people yeah. and, and one another? So. You know, I think as we keep talking today, it's important to realise that there is that joint responsibility and, and you know, there's nothing that I hear more than leaders thinking staff need more resilience 
Um, but you know, we need to have those those processes in place. Mm. The the other thing that I was um thinking about there too is that whole bouncing back and being yeah. able to sort of feel better after a more complex or stressful time. I often see that staff perceptions that they can actually bounce back is much higher than what it is. Yeah. And I've I too myself have been there and maybe it's because when we're answering a survey, this is where I'm capturing my data from, we don't really think about how we fare in those really complex times because, you know, what's interesting is that I'll have 85% of the staff saying that they're flexible and resilient to change and, you know, getting through really more stressful times. But then let's say 55% of staff report that they're burnt out and I think, Okay, well, this is interesting (laughs) because, um, you know, I think or maybe we've just worn out that flexibility muscle. (laughs) We've had to do it so much and that resilience muscle, we've had to do it so much that we're worn down and so it's beginning to wear the brake pads, so to speak. absolutely. And I also think it's because so many teachers, I mean, we have a culture in education of soldiering on. Um, and so I, and, and, you know, there is in some pockets of society, you know, there is kind of a concept of resilience being like soldiering on, you know, take Mm. a teaspoon of cement and carry on. Like it's, which is, we know that that is not actually true resilience. Um, Mm. and, Mm. you know, stoicism in the face of (laughs) difficult things might be needed in the moment, but that doesn't mean you can't then also feel those feelings and process everything that's happened afterwards um and so i also think sometimes that the the perception of needing to soldier on works uh, you know teachers feel that they need to soldier on mm. because there's there's work still to do so we've got to carry on what else can we do yeah life's in a heat you know um got to get through to the holidays but then they're also they are recognizing underlying but i'm i am going to collapse in a heap i am burnt out that's right <laughs> It's so true. And I remember thinking before I really developed what it means to be resilient, I thought I was the most resilient person alive. Mm. And that was because I'd been through a lot in my life and I was still alive. So that to me was the definition (laughs) of being resilient. Like, you know, I've loved, I've lost, you know, I've I've been through mental health issues, I've struggled with infertility, I've been a school teacher and educator and, you know, or I've interacted with all of these horrible people in my life. Like I was like, but I'm still here. Mm. So I'm really resilient. And then it, it then I had to really uh, open my eyes up to my actual situation was like, well, I'm not actually doing okay because yeah. my health is in tatters. Mm. I hate coming to work. I'm disconnected yeah. from my husband. Uh, that actually isn't being very resilient because I'm not enjoying life at all. I'm merely existing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that that's important is maybe we really don't understand the definition of actually being resilient. And I love mm. that whole idea of the bridge. We don't have yeah. to keep rebuilding ourselves or, you know, end up being um, something that cars can drive over just. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What will stand the, the the test of time, you know, being sturdy and strong. Yeah. And because the bridge that you need completely also depends on the environment that you're in, mm. Mm. you know, the, the, 
um, the Sydney Harbour Bridge is a completely different kind of structure to, you know, the little bridge over the creek crossing in regional Queensland that, um, you know, is just has a lot maybe less traffic um, but potentially a lot harsher environment, you know. So, like, that's right. It's it's complicated. There's no one size fits all um, and it's not a one and done thing. You know, you don't just build a bridge and then ignore it for the next 20 years and then wonder why it collapses <laughs> when there's a flood. There's this ongoing maintenance and that's those habits and those strategies that we're constantly putting in place. Maybe maybe they, you know, fall off a little bit in that busy week of term report cards, but we, we're sort of getting back on track and getting back to our good sleep routines and our, you know, trying to mostly feed ourselves you know, nourishing food and just looking after ourselves in general to make sure that we're looking after our ability to meet the challenges that are going to come our way. We just don't always know when they will be. That's right. And that probably leads into the question that I'll ask, um, you know, second part of the question is what does a resilient teacher look like? And mm. I think we've we've defined what they don't look like in many ways, which yes. is you know, thinking you're resilient, but still actually really struggling with your day to day. But what do you, to you, what does a resilient teacher or educator look like? Yeah. So the resilient teacher that I often talk about, and I think I've said this already, is just that it, the, it's almost the opposite of the depleted teacher, mm. but um, it's really about making sure that you're checking in on your needs, you know, doing a bit of a needs assessment and then making time and making space in your life to do whatever you need to do to mostly meet those needs. It's not like we need to be, you know, A plus all the time, um, but to not let things get so depleted. So things like or, or signals that you are more on this side of the continuum than the other would be things like you get tired, but then you feel rejuvenated after mm most weekends or after a good night's sleep, um, you've got some good boundaries between work and home and, and you don't always stick to them um, or you might know when you can flex them when as, you know, as needed, but you've generally got these fairly good boundaries. Um, you're making time for, you know, those healthy habits, again, like 80% of the time, like most of the time, um, and making time uh, for a social life that is not solely connected to school. Mm. Um, you, you know, you can socialise with other teachers but don't just talk about school the whole time. <laughs> oh, God, that's um, so hard. You have to set, we used to have to set rules. Right. <laughs> we weren't allowed yeah. to talk about school. Absolutely. For- or set a timer oh, and when the timer goes off, no more shop talk. Yep, absolutely. Um, and also, the you know, so I talk about these five elements. So designing your life, um, nourishing your body, nurturing your mind. And then the the last two that I really focus on with with my clients is feeding your soul and also maintaining your supports. And your supports, obviously, we, I think most of us know, particularly post-pandemic, not that we're post the pandemic, but, you know, as we've lived through the pandemic, we all obviously need a support network. But it's, it's also, it's not just about that personal support network, also the professional supports, whether that is your, your workplace you know, port systems that are in place, so the leaders and things that, that are supporting you, but also what other potential professional supports might you need. So a lot of my clients would look at me, their wellbeing coach, as one of those professional supports. Or it might be that you have a personal trainer because if you don't, you're not going to show up at the gym and do your exercise. Or maybe you've got, you know, chronic issues or, or acute issues, you need to go to the physio or whatever it might be, those professional supports, a counsellor, a psychologist. Um, so you've 
you're not an island, right? You, you don't have to do everything on your own. Um, and then the other one is that, that you're feeding your soul regularly. And that it, it often for people is a faith or religious-based um, activity, but it doesn't have to be. It's just literally that idea of you as a person first and a teacher second. Who are you? What is your, you know, um, parts of your identity that are not related to your job or your kind of professional roles? And so it might be a hobby. It might be connecting with nature, something that's meaningful or gives you joy other than work, which, you know, you might not have a lot of time for in week nine, but hopefully you're doing a lot more of it on the holidays. And then, you know, most of the term you're getting a little bit of it in. Maybe it's reading 15 minutes before bed of a of a novel, whatever it might be that's that's for you to sort of fill your cup, feed your soul that's got nothing to do with work. Mm, it's that development of self-awareness too I mm. find in there. You know, my my spiritual practice was really getting to know myself, as mm. you said, and my purpose and what I want and why. Um, and, you know, sometimes we shy away from that aspect of our lives because it seems really scary, and it is. It can be. That's <laughs> um, right. At the beginning, but, God, it's rewarding, isn't mm. it, once, mm. you, once you move through that. Yeah, and and the other thing that I more and more these days um, am starting to recognise and I guess try and remind my clients of too is that seasons change, you know. So what was working for you and and was helping you um, charge your battery and, you know, be resilient um, in one phase of life might be very different in a different phase of life. And obviously yes, you and so I were just, just talking about like this season of having little kids in daycare and bringing germs home and um, just having the demands of parenting little humans. Um, Obviously, it's very, very, very different to what life was like before there were little humans to look after. Um, But also, you know, I listen to people talk about their the challenges they're facing with their teenage kids and things like that, like things change. And so not to feel so rigid about um, but these are my habits that look after me and I don't understand why they're not working anymore. It's like, well, maybe maybe you need to rethink and recheck in because um, seasons change and, and, you know, therefore your approach needs to as well. That's right. I remember, you know, at the very beginning of my journey, the thing that I needed was a lot of that personal development work, mm. a lot of that reflection, a lot of reading. Whereas now I could think of nothing better than resting, <laughs> doing yeah. nothing, um, you know, particularly when you run around after a toddler and by the time <laughs> that this is um, this is out, I would have announced that I'm pregnant again. Yeah. So sleep, I don't want to get up and journal in the morning anymore. No. I want to sleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and recognizing that that still is part of filling up your own cup because it's an intentional choice of how you're looking after yourself. And I say that to uh, school staff all the time when we're in there sort of talking about how to manage time. I say, live each minute of your day with intention. And if between 6 and 8.30 p.m. you plan to sit on the couch and be with your partner or be with yourself or be with your cat, whatever it is, like own that that's you've chosen that time for you. Mm. That is you time. And then you'll start to think of how that whole idea of work-life balance really differently rather than I have to sort of fall in a heap at night. No, I, that's what I am doing to rejuvenate myself, yeah. to recharge or to turn off after talking to 30 young children all day, whatever it might be. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, to you know, I think for leaders listening or any, anyone really that's working 
on supporting staff and supporting people with their well-being is also to recognize that um, different people will have different uh, needs, obviously, but like, you know, a different need for, as you said, you needed that personal development work and that in, in other stages of life or people with different, um, what am I trying to say? Like if you've got a different frame or different personal history, you might actually feel like that's not, it's not doing much for me. Like it's, I'm not saying it's bad, but like, like I actually would, would rather spend my time doing something else. Um, or, you know, I would, I recognize that it's not really hitting the mark for me that the area that I need to focus on, the area that needs support for me is, is a different one. Maybe it is going to the psychologist or maybe it is exercise. You know, like I, I often have this conversation with my husband who is an exercise physiologist by trade and is also just a really like an athletic person. He loves movement. I have a very, very different relationship to exercise because of my history with chronic fatigue syndrome and needing to pace myself, which he really understands from a from a professional perspective. But there are times when he's like, oh, you, you know, you're stressed, you're struggling, go and exercise because that's the that's the tool that he has. And so it's like everything looks like a nail because that's his hammer. Mm. Um, and, I mean, you know, he, he very much understands that it's not always the case, but just to recognise that what works really well for you might not be the thing that that person feels like they need, even if maybe they do need it. You know, there's definitely times where he's right, I do need to exercise more. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like making that the especially with you, when you're working with staff, making that uh, another thing that staff feel like their well-being is a stick that they're being beaten with over the head as much as, you know, all the other demands of the job. You know, it's about being quite um, careful also about how we're talking about people's individual well-being choices. Mm-hmm. Um, even when, you know, sometimes we can see it's really obvious from the outside how someone's getting in their own way, but if they can't see it, that's not necessarily helpful for us to be always pointing it out to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, you and I know this really well-being, well-being coaches, and you know, I'm sort of out of working in that one-on-one space mm. anymore. But it's really our job to help people to see that, and then to find again what works for them, what they mm. enjoy, where they've been successful in the past, something that lights them up. And mm. you know, that comes back to that whole idea of having those supports, and it's going mm. to be particular, particularly pertinent to those who are listening, who are like, you know looking after my well-being is really foreign to me. You yeah. might just need that help to be able to scratch beneath the surface to find out what it is that will work best for you rather than always listening to the advice of professionals and wondering why that doesn't sound anything like something that would interest you at all. Yeah, or something that might actually send you off on a, you know, like a, oh, well, now that you've asked me to do it, I won't do it. Like almost that, the, mm. the our inner child kind of petulant reactions coming through when actually it might be good for us, but because of the way it was approached, we're now rejecting the idea, but it, it's less that we're rejecting the suggestion and more potentially the the way the conversation was had or the way the well-being was being discussed in the staff room or whatever it may be. Yeah, that's right. It's really it's as you said before, it's not a one size fits no. all approach. 
And it's the same thing for our approach to tending to staff wellbeing as a whole mm. is that we can't just apply a blanket approach to how we think our support our staff want to be supported. It's mm. actually pinpointing again what seems to be the key stresses and then where staff might think it's valuable for us to be able to best support them. So we've got to be diagnostic. That's it, where, where the staff will find it valuable um, because if they're not, it's probably not going to be effective. <laughs> yeah, and this is where you start to see some perceptions coming out and I see it a lot in in surveys that I read, really well-intentioned leaders who are obviously saying and probably actually doing a lot of the right things, but staff say it just feels a bit tokenistic. Mm. It just feels like words. And, and that, again, is because we're not always getting to the root cause. That doesn't mean that we stop encouraging wellbeing and we stop saying you matter and you should access support if you need it and my door's always open. Uh, it's how, like, we, you know, linking back to what we are talking about before, how we identify what those key stresses are, how we predict them, and then and how we have that conversation about practical ways to support mm. our staff. Mm. All right, so I'm really keen to, to hear your thoughts. I mean, I've heard a lot of them already uh, in terms of some of those key strains that we'll experience in, in schools that can impact our well-being as leaders, teachers and educators and, 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 our, and our resilience as well. So we heard about, you know, key events reporting, complex critical incidences, um, you know, conversations or more challenging conversations with parents. Um, you know, outside of that, though, from talking to those that you work with, what are some of those other strains or impacts that 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 we're experiencing in schools that we might not necessarily be thinking about or would identify straight away? Yeah, I mean, because it's a tricky one because there are so many. <laughs> it's such mm. a big topic. Like, the job of working in a school, no matter your role, really the demands of the job are more than any one role. Like I think everyone that works in a school is doing like two people's jobs realistically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that in and of itself, just the sheer workload and the sheer amount of um, pressure that many many are under um, is a huge, you know, a <laughs> huge one. Yep. Um, and I there's no easy solution for that, which, you know, I know you talk about that accepting the things that we can't do much about, um, which is, you know, really hard to do. When <laughs> Oh, God, acceptance was the hardest skill or strategy I was practising for and still have to practise. I think children helps you to accept things out of your control True. more than anything else. Yeah, acceptance is really hard, but it's coming back to it all the time, isn't it? And recognizing what's out of our control, but what is, and let's focus mm. our attention on the things that are in our control when it comes to workload. And and so also like culture as well. Workplace culture is a huge one. Um, and obviously that's not something that any one individual can change, but we can influence and really bringing ourselves, you know, back to recognizing, well, maybe I'm not going to be able to shift the whole culture in my school, whether it's a really, you know, whether you're you're a teacher listening or a staff member listening and you've got um, a leadership team that's not not great for the school culture or not not being intentional and supportive, which probably if they're listening to this podcast is not the case. They're probably (laughs) um, quite proactive about it. But um, or whether it's just, you know, there might be one of those 
colleagues who's just really negative and difficult and um, doesn't matter what is being suggested, they're cynical about it and distrustful and all of that. And you're probably not going to get them on board. You know, you're probably not going to be able to um, make massive changes there. But where can you influence? Who are the people that you can kind of bring along to the, you know, the light side of the force to, to, um, to use the Star Wars metaphor. So, yeah, focusing on what we can change, what we can control, and, and culture is one of those um, really it's the water we're all swimming in, isn't it? And, and we're fish not even knowing we're in water. So <laughs> um, the little things that we can do every day to really um, sh- hopefully shift and influence that culture where we can, recognising we can't, you know, change the whole thing. Um, and then that I think that that focus for me and for the clients that I work with, that focus on the person first, teacher second, and, and kind of separating our personal identity from the professional role, from the job, um, is really important because when those two things are too intertwined, when we, when our identity is so caught up in being a teacher, that I think can actually be a bit of a warning sign um, for burnout because it means that we are not always approaching the work with the distance that we might need and we're also often um, in those sort of self-sacrificing modes, that soldier on mode because um, we're not necessarily prioritising things in the order that if if it's person first, teacher second, if you look after the person, the the teacher will take care of themselves, right, whereas if you're only prioritising the teacher, um, the sometimes the the personal stuff catches up with you and then the teacher's really impacted as well. <laughs> mm, that's right. And, you know, we were talking before we hit record around, again, it comes back to that joint responsibility it here. Is. It's, you know, if we're, if we're not uh, putting ourselves first as a person, um, we are, of course, going to cause ourselves more strain than if we are um, prioritizing self-care and setting those boundaries, um, which don't have to be rude boundaries, no, by the way. I think it's it's just, you know, a combination of being vulnerable and assertive, mm. I think is the best combination yeah. um, all at once. But if we're not doing that, and then again, as, as teachers or educators, we're expecting our leaders only solely to fix things at a culture level or at mm. a management level, we're also missing the mark there. Yeah. So, you know, if we're looking for change in our school, then we're automatically going to feel at least slightly better if we're able to manage ourselves. Mm. Um, it helps us to be able to, of course, not grab on so tightly to the issues that we might be experiencing at our school that, as we talked about, might be out of our control for now. Mm. So to focus on, you know, it, what we can control the most, which of course is ourselves. Yeah. And also, you know, sometimes we don't even need to be communicating these changes or these boundaries to anybody else. Mm. You know, a a boundary can even just simply be, well, I I shut the laptop by 7 p.m. every night and whatever's left undone will wait till tomorrow. Mm. And recognising that that is my personal boundary that I have set and then very occasionally there may be a, a time when I it's actually not in my well-being's best interests to stick so rigidly to that boundary. Again, it doesn't have to be that example, but that we sometimes do need to flex them as well 
in specific situations, um, boundaries are not always, uh, I think that they're more like a gate than a fence. Mm. So we sometimes need to open that gate, right? But we, it's there to protect us um, most of the time or to, to keep us, you know, in our own yard kind of thing. <laughs> mm, mm, that's right. And, um, you know, the, the thing that I was thinking about as you were talking there is I think you need a bit of a refocus on your boundaries if when you're doing things it doesn't feel right or mm. it aggravates you or makes you feel more stressed and you might think, oh, that's an interesting piece of feedback that I'm getting from myself. Yeah. Um, I think I really need to stop working or weekend or whatever it mm. might be and, and pull it back just a little bit. Whereas sometimes you might choose to respond because you don't want to think about it all to an email because you don't want exactly to think right. about it all weekend. Exactly right. Because then you know it's done. Yeah. And that's that's having that flexibility. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, the other things I was sort of thinking about as we were talking and, and sort of when I work with staff in a school, you're so right. When we talk about causes of burnout you could I could almost talk for 10 minutes just listing the things that can cause us you know uh, high levels of stress and, and and lead to burnout and it's going to be so dependent on what we're experiencing in a school but you know communication and relationships and um as I, you sort of mentioned there before that sometimes the negativity of others that we work alongside yeah. um, can really begin to weigh quite heavily on us and you know sort of that there's this and it really interesting thing i was thinking as you were talking about is when people are negative, there's there's two things, well, there's probably more than two things, but two main things that come to mind here is how we manage ourselves when a person is being negative at us or in our space, whether we attach to that or whether we sort of choose to move away and not focus on it. But there's also that important aspect of, and this is where I talk about that joint responsibility, that as a whole school, if that seems to be a problem, then at a leadership or management level, um, you know, people management is a big thing as well. Yeah. And and in this really particularly stressful and time where we've fallen into the operational, that people management side of things and relationship management side of things and, um, you know, con consulting and communicating with our staff has fallen by the wayside a bit and not because our leaders intentionally don't want to do it but because they, you know, we've just had so many so much responsibilities. Yeah. yeah. So we're trying to really rebuild that um, alongside hoping to that our staff as people are also building their skills with how to, mm. how to manage those things that we can't fix overnight just because we recognise that they're an issue. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, so many of the people that I work with, and look, I've been there too, like when you're having a tough time, it is natural to like, and it is really literally how our brains work that we focus on the negative. Um, it's a bit of a survival mechanism, but also then so many of us have a, have a, a way of relating to each other where whinging and moaning is also the way we connect. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeking is connection and validation of the fact that we're struggling and we're, you know, yeah, we're struggling with something, um, or times are really tough, and and so what we what we're deep down seeking is that validation, and for somebody to say, yeah, it sounds like that's really hard. You know, it sounds like you're having a really tough time, or that I I resonate with that. It's hard for me too. You know, you're not the only one. But the way that often plays out is just this chronic negativity. That's right. nobody's really being validated. Everyone's kind of 
drained and frustrated by everyone being negative and grumpy and all that all the time. And then it's just this vicious cycle because no one's actually getting that validation and that um, Mm. connection that they're really seeking. Yeah, and this is why as part of the work I'll do in schools, I try and get all of this out in the open in the Mm. first term. And it can seem so arduous, I know, for leaders to hear everything that their staff really are wanting to say. But Mm. I think when you've got a really formal process for doing that, where like, let's just say it out loud, let's talk about it, let's vent it. And then we go away, take that information and then come back and validate what we're hearing, take the emotion out of it and look at moving forward. It's, It's going to, at least if we do it well, mean that you're right people aren't then having those conversations in staff rooms and yeah offices. the meeting after the meeting in the car park <laughs> yeah and nothing happening and you know that was one of the key those key stresses is staff are saying which is really interesting is is communication and consultation and involvement feeling mm. heard mm. and feeling truly valued and mm. I think because we're probably feeling quite sensitive as leaders we don't like we're having a hard time too. It's really hard to have Absolutely. to do that, but it's so important. It's a really important part of the process. So then we can we can move forward. And you know, really interestingly too, a lot of the time in schools, the main cause of these stresses and and burnout is sometimes challenging student behaviors. That's right. Yeah. Which which makes sense. You know, particularly in the pandemic, we've all felt a bit more disconnected, but. You know, we then we can go. Okay, well, we can as a strategic focus really focus on systemizing that approach again, and and getting clear on our expectations across the school. And um, you know, it's it's not so much a lack of teacher resilience all the time, but it's just getting our processes in check again. Yeah, and and even just for, you know, absolutely like you said, so hard. If you're a leader working really hard and struggling yourself with the demands of your role to then feel like staff are just criticizing you all the time and you're doing the best that you can. But so often also all people want is just to be heard. And then mm-hmm. if you can come back and say, oh, I really hear that, that that's impacted you and I didn't, you know, I, I wish it wasn't. I wish there was something I could do about this new, you know, departmental policy or this particular student and where, you know, obviously their behavior is really challenging and it's really impacting you because they're in your class all day and here's what I suggest or here's what we can do, here's what we can't do, but Mm. I really just want you to know that I hear how hard it is for you and I am here to support you or let's workshop this more together or, you know, whatever it might be, just to be heard. Often people go, oh, yeah, good, all right, thanks. Like I just wanted you to recognise me as an individual. And and from that, I think when when we open up the floor to hear our staff talk about what it is that's you know, causing them the most angst or whether, you know, I'm thinking in particular whether it is more negative staff. Mm. Um, I, I think it's really quite normal and I'm seeing this a lot that in the last couple of years our expectations and standards have dropped and mm. that's because we just haven't had time to refocus on our roles and responsibilities and what's expected of our staff. And, you know, many of us, as as we get caught up inventing to others, as you said, and seeking validation, we've almost tiptoed into some quite unprofessional behaviour without realising that we're doing it. Mm. And 
a lot of the work I'll do with schools is just to get clear again on our vision as a school and those gentle standards and expectations of how we can hold one another to account. And this Mm -hmm. is including staff of leaders and staff of themselves and leaders of their people too, because we can't underestimate how valuable that process is because I think, yeah, we've just kind of slipped into a culture where we do talk about things behind closed doors or Mm. we go to somebody else or I've heard it called white anting. And I don't think people are intentionally doing that. I think they've just got caught in this cycle of behaviour and we have to come back to communicating what we expect as a group and co-constructing that. Yeah. And then from here, it's much easier than to have more difficult conversations where we say, hey, hang on, at the beginning of the year, we agreed that when we had a concern or some feedback about a process, we would speak to our direct leader. Yep. Now, I've heard that that might not have been the case. Like, is there something wrong? You know, is there a reason for why you felt like you couldn't communicate that feeling rather than a blame mm. game? Like you did the wrong mm. thing. It's like, what's going on here? And then we come in with this less judgmental tone and, and way of managing it because I think really, <laughs> for lack of a better term, sometimes we've gone a little bit rogue <laughs> in areas of the school. 100%. Um, yeah, and it's uh, it makes a lot of sense. When we're really burnt out or really stressed or our health is impacted, we we don't always think so rationally or behave so rationally and we just need to check check in with ourselves and see where we're at again. A hundred percent. And like I have done that myself. You're absolutely right that that we have slipped into this unprofessional behavior. And it's obviously it's not everyone, it's not all the time. And but but that no. people generally don't want to you know I really strongly a really huge learning experience for me was um when I was still teaching and I was going through some stuff outside of school but also there were some changes happening at school that were very stressful for me personally um and I was ranting for want of a better word but you know whinging in the staff room about Mm -hmm. a leader and then they walked in and they had overheard me and you know in yeah, I mean, mortifying, but also I was in the wrong. Like mm. I was I was in my head, I'm just venting this, I'm just getting it out, but actually I was behaving really unprofessionally and they handled it so incredibly well. Mm. Um, I think they recognised also that it was not necessarily a reflection on anything about the actual situation that I was grumping about but more about other stuff that was going on for me um which was extremely magnanimous of them to be honest um and obviously I apologized like it was I was I knew I was in the wrong I knew (laughs) that I it was um completely unprofessional and uncalled for um and I apologized and we went on to have a good working relationship but it it is so easy I think for us to get that slippery slope of I'm really good buddies with my teaching partners or my, you know, my teaching besties or whatever. And then it, it does slip from a professional, um, professional conduct into more of that, I suppose, gossipy personal, um, whinging and, and that kind of approach that is actually, yeah, as you say, it's not really, uh, it is not at all acceptable in a workplace and that most people don't really mean to go there uh, and they just, yeah, having a, having a, a communication at the start of the year, I love that, where it's like this is what we kind of agree to, it's, it's expectations of the staff and 
then if people are going off track, being able to gently bring them back. Um, yeah, refocus yeah. on it often. It's not just mm. a charter or norms we develop once and we exactly. never come back Set to and forget. Yeah. yeah, this has to be part of our culture and it means that we have a unified approach to and how it means we that we sometimes have to have hard conversations, you know, yeah, because in and that I situation think... I, I needed to have a conversation with that leader and say this is not working for me and these are the reasons why. But I wasn't doing that because yeah. that's harder than having a grump in the staff room. But thank goodness she had the hard conversation with you. And I think man, there's probably yes. many, yeah, well, there's <laughs> probably many leaders listening to this who are probably going, oh, yeah, we have pockets of those staff mm-hmm. across the school and two, it's really easy for us to be like there's negative pockets, they're influencing mm-hmm. everyone, but what are we actually doing as leaders to manage that and that is within our role mm-hmm. is to manage that. And I see a lot of the time on survey staff won't perceive conflict as well managed and mm. senior leaders say oh but I do that really well and I'm like no 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 I think what they're looking to as their direct leader yeah is how are they managing things in their team are they letting those comments slide are they letting those conversations happen in their meetings without addressing it um professionally and, and assertively we really can't ignore that we and we don't have to be authoritarian in this I, that's no, not, not my all. kind of leadership at all but it's we are all in this together and and it needs to come from a how from a leadership perspective how as a leader can i support you to be able to be your best self as a professional exactly and because, yeah what because how people can i help want you to. how can you support yourself yeah because people generally want to be their best self you know mm-hmm. and also because i you know i often think of that um, behavior management analogy where, you know, in a room of 20 kids, you might have two or three that are going to be really hard nuts to crack. And then you're going to have those two or three that are like, you, you really, they're, they're never putting a foot wrong. They're always following instructions. They're the, you know, the pleasures to teach, but then you've got a bunch in the kind of in between there who can kind of go either way, depending who they're surrounded by and how are we encouraging them, you know, to obviously follow the rules in the classroom and, and follow instructions and all of that. And I think it's the same with staff. Like my majority of teachers that I've ever met or spoken to, even when they maybe recognize, and, and this does happen in coaching sessions where obviously I'm not connected to their school at all. So they can say, yeah, I, you know, I messed up there or I, I'm not proud of myself for that. Um, but it's not who they want to be and and they're they're we all you know vast majority of teachers that I've ever met want to be productive you know kind generous communicative uh, members of staff um, but also we're all human beings and we don't you know, we make mistakes. And so then how can we come back from that too? Um, and how can we encourage that that culture to be really encouraging and supportive? Um, and to, you know, encourage people to, <laughs> again, go to the light side of the force. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You probably have, well, you would, you have people coming to you to support themselves with their health and well-being, and again, being able to put themselves as people first and teachers second. What are some telltale signs that teachers or educators might not be putting themselves first as people and might be potentially experiencing or being at risk of burnout what are some of those key symptoms that you'll see of people coming to you initially because some people don't know I think that's one thing I've now learned is that people do not recognize that they are burnt out 
they don't. And a lot of my clients come to me after they've had some kind of burnout experience or health scare or something that has made them sit up and take notice. Um, so it, it is really common for people because because we soldier on, right? We we just soldier on. That's the culture. That's what we've, you know, so many of us have been kind of ingrained into us that that's what we do. Um, and so some of the signs, I mean, I think that chronic negativity is a big sign. And, and in fact, in some of the research around burnout, that's that idea of cynicism um, around the the job or the the workplace is one of the symptoms of burnout. And I think that we don't take that nearly seriously enough because so many of us do just kind of go, yeah, you know, teachers are whingers. So, you know, that, that behavior we don't necessarily recognize as a a symptom and an early symptom of burnout. Um, Another one that I, I've been thinking a lot more about recently differently is actually those thoughts of leaving teaching. Um, and so when I was pregnant, I had hyperemesis, which is um, extreme morning sickness, oh, absolutely cool. awful. But one of the things that um, I learned through that experience is they say that hydrated people don't sit around wondering all day if they're dehydrated enough to need to go to hospital, um, you know, because obviously if you're vomiting a lot, you, you're um, dehydrate, getting dehydrated. And so um, if you're sitting around wondering if you're dehydrated enough to need some kind of medical intervention, you probably are because <laughs> people who are hydrated don't think that way. Um, and to really recognize those thoughts really early on to prevent you from, you know, potentially needing to be hospitalized if, if you're actually able to catch those thoughts and then go, right, well, I you know, need to do a bit more of the hydration here. Not that you, it's always in your control when you're that sick. But I've really been thinking about that as a metaphor for those thoughts about leaving teaching because so many of the, I mean, we know that there's a huge um, teacher shortage at the moment Mm. um, and it's, and it's getting worse. And, you know, I just heard a stat this week that upwards of 50% of Australian teachers at the moment, I'm not sure where they got this stat from. It was on the today show, Um, but uh, (laughs) upwards of 50% of teachers are are thinking about leaving. And I think that's a warning sign because Mm. people who are, not burnt out and not thinking about leaving their jobs. That's right. Well, it and was 75% in the pandemic, according to one yeah. study. So I'm glad it's somewhat well, come down. <laughs> maybe it's improved. Still 50% isn't good. Well, my stats are showing that on average 55% yeah. of teachers are burnt out, are yeah. reporting burnout or multiple symptoms of burnout. Yeah. And I would assume that if you are at crisis point, which is what burnout is, mm. it must have crossed your mind that you're thinking, I don't want to keep... T- engaging in this painful experience anymore exactly too so but you know I think the the key is is that again you can not feel like that again with the right skills and strategies and supports in place as well as a good leadership approach too so I I think that conversation isn't had enough is that you can feel one way and like you want to leave and you're done but Mm. you can then also within for my experience in the same year yeah love your job again yep absolutely and that's uh, so many of the stories that's really why I started the teacher wellbeing podcast Mm. so many of the teacher stories on the podcast are are exactly that it's not always that short of a turnaround um but of people sharing they went through a really tough time. Sometimes they took some time out of the classroom. Um, Sometimes they, you know, didn't necessarily take a formal break, but some other, you know, like maternity leave or something else 
um, facilitated a break mm. from work. Well, the maternity leave is a break. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, um, you know, then they were able to, through all sorts of a range of um, approaches and strategies, to fall in love with the job again. Mm. It is totally possible. But I also think the other piece of it that I've been really thinking about a lot recently is that so often we don't, we, we, we don't admit to others, let alone even sometimes ourselves, that we're actually thinking this regularly. Mm. And because we don't want to be seen as someone who's planning to leave, especially if you, you know, are going for promotional positions or you're trying to secure a permanent placement or anything like that, you know, we, we often don't acknowledge that we are actually thinking about leaving which then means that we often don't actually address the things that could make it more supported for us. Or mm. the other thing that I've seen happen is that people let it get to such crisis point before they really face up and acknowledge that actually I do need to do something else for a while or maybe forever, that then that transition is really hard, like really yeah. hard. And, and I've worked with some people who had a full-blown burnout and they literally can't work at all for years afterwards because they've they it got so bad that they're actually you know housebound or bedridden for a long time and just really not able to work at all and and so many of them have said to me like oh yeah i was thinking for years before this there were these thoughts or these warning signs and i ignored them and i ignored them and i ignored them and then i i literally couldn't ignore them anymore because my body forced me out and now i can't even you know, the, some of those, I guess, earlier pathways of intervention and support and finding our way back in or finding a different career are closed off because they're actually too unwell to do anything else for a while um, yeah. and be sick. So I think pay attention to those thoughts and take them seriously. Again, with that that hydration analogy, like if you're, if you're thinking it, it's probably a sign that there's something off um, and to to start to address that, whether it is to be seriously looking at taking a career break or changing jobs. Um, and if that's something that you're looking at, then, you know, there is supports available. That is something that I support people with. But also there are ways to support yourself so that you actually love the job again. That is possible. Um, but it's really hard if you've reached the bedridden stage. Yeah, and I think, you know, that the other sort of thing that pops out from what you're talking about there, you know, how you said if you're thinking about that, that's something to acknowledge, but also talking to somebody about mm. that. And that just comes back to, I think, speaking up. Yeah. And that's something being vulnerable and seeking support or just even expressing how we're feeling is really foreign to some people. And it certainly mm. was to me. I think it wasn't until like 14 months in to, to me going through an IVF journey or an, inf mm. an infertility experience that I actually told my principal. Yeah. And I it's because I developed the skills in being vulnerable and expressing myself. I read every Brene Brown mm. book and so <laughs> took the, you know, took had the confidence to sit down in her office and say, this is what I'm going through and this is what I'm feeling. And thankfully, I worked under incredibly, amazingly beautiful leadership where Deb, my principal, sort of 
burst into tears and said, I can't believe you didn't tell me. And then from there, it was so proactive as to me then getting the work support that I needed. But I could imagine, and I think back when I was leading, if I had one of my staff say to me, I've had thoughts about leaving, that as a leader, I would be working with them and supporting them to be able to move through that. And if you're thinking, you know, you're an educator listening and you think, I couldn't have that conversation with my leader and that could be for any range of reasons. Is there somebody else in your school at a leadership level or, you know, coach or mentor or anything who you could have that conversation with who could open up those doors to be being able to help you access your own support or to support you in a school context? Yeah, exactly. And, and maybe it's not someone at your school, you know, maybe it's your GP, mm-hmm. you know, like there's, it's lovely if you can speak to your leaders about it, but not not everyone. It's not always. It's not always the case. But also, at, like in your experience, you needed to do some personal work in your mm. own life before you felt like no, mm. it was nothing to do with the, um, you know, safety of that leader. It was more about your own personal safety in being able to speak up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, however you come at it, whether whether it is that you you go away and find some other people uh, that are not your school leader to talk to about it or whether you can actually speak to your school leader. I always think that it's helpful to frame these conversations as um, a stitch in time saves nine, right? Like just because you're thinking about leaving teaching or you're thinking that you're fairly on the road to burnout, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to end up at that Mm. destination. It's just a symptom that we need to probably course correct or get some more supports. And, and so f- sort of reminding yourself if you are having that conversation that you'll be, it's really proactive to discuss it and to ask for help, it's hard. But- oh, yeah. You, and that's you know, coming back to our approach to well-being. For some people, your well-being <laughs> way to support yourself might be to work on how to express yourself and seek exactly. support and be vulnerable. It's that, that advocating for yourself. Yeah. And and for many people that's really hard because of yeah. life experience, past trauma, role modeling yep. from parents, times where they've been let down in the past. And we 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 have to be mindful of that. And that's, mm. you know, it c- kind of also comes back to that whole consultation and feedback. Mm. Sometimes that's the first time staff have in some way, whether it's anonymously or in a group expressed how they're feeling and if we don't take that information away and address it and communicate back what we're doing we might not ever get it back again yeah that's right and I would also add to any staff members that are listening who maybe have felt like well I I did try you know I I did say to leader A that I was struggling on it and they they kind of brushed me off or they dismissed me don't think that that was your only opportunity. Yeah, that's right. You can potentially talk to that same person again and kind of come back and say, no, hang on a minute. I don't think you maybe understood. But also you could try someone else. Is there someone else that you can talk to? You know, and I and that is so hard um, when we feel like, well, I, I did try and ask for help or I did try and kind of raise the alarm and they didn't listen to me. And sometimes that's just a case that they weren't paying attention that day. Or sometimes it's that they're not the person to be the one that's, that's going right. to support you. But or like don't we said, up. they don't have the skills in that management, exactly. not because they're a poor leader, but they no. haven't 
like some of these elements actually require, you know, the developing of emotional intelligence as leaders and personal attributes, which is really hard, but are skills that Mm. we can develop. And Mm. our leader just might not be there yet. And what we're doing and communicating to them and even coming back to them again could be the catalyst for helping them to develop that next. And, and, And sometimes too it's that we're all learning these skills all at the same time and it's going to be a bit hit and miss and a little bit trial and error. You know, mm. if you're still developing that skill of advocating for yourself, you can feel the first time you try it and they don't listen to you, you can feel like, well, that must have been something you did wrong or, mm. you know, I'm going to give up, I'm not going to try again. But um, I think the more you do it, the more you recognise that, oh, no, I, I can try again, that approach didn't work or that person wasn't receptive that day or mm. it's not necessarily a case that... Um, I guess you get better at going, well, what could have been the reason it didn't work? How could I approach that differently next time and, and trying again? In, you know, right. And teachers are so good at that in the classroom. You know, So many of us have absolutely developed those skills in the classroom of like, well, I taught them that thing and these students haven't seemed to have understood it. So how <laughs> can I try it differently? What <laughs> other strategies <laughs> and scaffolding and whatever? I, but then we don't apply that in now sort of interpersonal <laughs> situations, but we do have those skills in that arena. So can we maybe um, look at borrowing some of those skills for the, for the grown up conversations? Yeah. Or seeking the support to be able to have those conversations. Exactly. You know, having, you know, wearing my leadership hat again, the kind of leader I was in the beginning of my leadership career to where I'm at now is vastly different. Exactly. So we're forever changing. Exactly. Um, and yeah, be patient with the leader. A hundred percent. Give them, yeah. Give them the benefit of the doubt. It's like what I yeah. always, I always yeah. say. Yeah. All right. Well, we see a number of quotes circulating on social media showcasing something really thought-provoking or inspiring from thought leaders across the globe and throughout time. If a quote was circulating from you, Ellen, on the topic of health, well-being, or even leadership, what would it say? I think it already is. I think it's just that I, I end most of my podcast with that line about you're a person first and a teacher mm-hmm. second, and you're worthy of your own care. Um, so I think that's probably it. (laughs) And I would say there too, to our leaders, you're a person first and And a leader leader second, second, although Mm. you hold a really prominent position in a school, your thriving is really essential to your staff and then therefore students thriving too. We often forget that you think that you're being a better leader by giving to others before giving to yourself. And Mm -hmm. the research actually shows that that's not true at all. Fit your own oxygen mask. Yeah. Yeah, that's another common thing I see too. Mm. All right, and my podcast is aptly titled Well-Led Schools, which is a play on words to reflect those schools who lead with well-being in mind. What is one thing you think schools or even leaders can do to prioritise well-being that would make the biggest difference to their people? Um, Well, there's going to be many things. Um, I think it probably does come back to that needs assessment or that diagnosing um, work that you do with schools where it's actually, you know, it's it's not going to be the same in every school. You know, the the, the needs of the staff, the um, approaches and strategies that are going to quote unquote work. Um, so I think doing that diagnostic work and doing a bit of a needs assessment of, of what the needs are in your school for your staff's well-being but also I think very strongly is to approach it with a long-term mindset. 
because it's so easy to want and it's so human to want a quick fix and well-being is anything but a quick fix. Um, Mm. So to just really keep reminding yourself that it's a long game and it's probably going to be two steps forward, one step back. Um, And just when you think you figured it out, there'll be, you know, a a whole change of curriculum or um, some global pandemic or something else that's going to come in and throw a lot of spanners in the works. But just it's that long-term game and just keep working at it basically. Don't don't get tempted by the quick fix stuff, but also um, think about how you can support yourself over the long term uh, of it because it's it's going to be a marathon not a sprint yeah I always call it a whack-a-mole like yeah. you'll <laughs> sort out one area and then something else will pop up I was talking to a principal the other day who had things going well and then there was you know a, a, some, a community argument I guess or yeah. a tussle going on and yeah. they're like she was like I'm really angry because yeah. everything was going well and now that's caused a whole new mm. line of stresses and I'm like but like we said we have to be prepared for this this is this is the work <laughs> yeah this is it yeah. all right well thank you so much for your time today I've loved talking to you about ways that we can support ourselves and our teachers and leaders and, and staff um it's it's been really great to finally catch up yeah I'm so pleased we made it happen. Thanks for having me, Adrienne. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to Well-Led Schools. I look forward to connecting with you at adriennehornby.com.au. Here you can get in contact with me, learn more about my approach and join my mailing list. I'm Adrienne Hornby. Thanks again for your time and stay well.